Thanks for listening to this Ave Maria radio podcast. Be sure to share it with your friends and family and across social media. Building the church so we can bless the nations. This is Ave Maria radio. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Thanking you for being with me. New movie out called Green Knight. The Green Knight, it's uh, based on a late 14th century uh, Middle English chivalric romance called Sir Gawain, or it's pronounced differently. Those of you who know Middle English will have the right pronunciation. But generally, in stores, it gets talked about as Sir Gawain in The Green Knight. Don't know who wrote it. Uh, it's an Arthurian story. Uh, you've got uh, uh, you got Sir Gawain. He's a knight of King Arthur's Round Table. He accepts a challenge from a mysterious Green Knight, uh, who makes dares any knight to strike him with his axe if he'll take a return blow in a year and a day. So Gawain accepts, beheads the Green Knight with his blow, and at which the Green Knight stands up, picks up his head, and reminds Gawain of the appointed time. And the film goes on to follow, to some degree, the poem, and it's about Sir Gawain's uh, struggle to finally close that circle. With me right now to talk about the new film, The Green Knight, is Stephen Gordonis. He's creator of Decent Films. He's a film critic for the National Catholic Register, a member of the New York Film Critics Circle, a permanent deacon in the Archdiocese of Newark. He co-hosts Real Faith with David DeCirto, and you can follow his work at decentfilms.com. Stephen, good to have you back. Oh, it's so good to be here. This is a movie that I have wanted to write about for a long time. This is a story I care about very deeply, and a filmmaker whose work I uh, have appreciated in the past. Tell me why it's such an important story to you. Uh, I, I mean, I have friends who have enjoyed, uh, you know, middle uh, middle ages poetry and chivalric romances. Uh, how did you get bit by the bug? Um, it was in college in my R3 and lit classes. Yep. I had a teacher, Bob Milgram, uh, who was very passionate and connected with me in a profound way. Not a believer, but he understood the Christian worldview so well. In some ways, he actually introduced me to aspects of Catholicism <laughs> I didn't yet understand as a Protestant. Um, the, the poem, Gowing in the Green Knight, is centrally about virtue, um, including piety, uh, devotion to the five wounds of Christ, and the five joys of Mary, devotion to the Mass, which Gawain attends almost every chance he gets, um, as hmm. well as the Sacrament of Penance. It's about chastity, but even more about truthfulness and keeping one's word. And, and ultimately, it's about human imperfection and the reality that even the best and the most admirable of us, like Gawain, fall short of perfection and are in need of the grace of God. Uh, beautiful. I mean, it sounds beautiful. Um... And let me take you then to the director of this. We now have something of the poem. Who's the director? David Lowry, who uh, listeners may have seen um, some of his other films, uh, Disney's um, uh, live-action Pete's Dragon, um, 
Uh, a ghost yeah. story with Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. Mm-hmm. Um, he this this is a um, uh, Lowry is an atheist, um, but he was raised Catholic, and he wasn't just raised Catholic. His father, Mark Lowry, who died just before the film was released, taught theology for 27 years at the University of Dallas. Yeah, yeah. Um, where, according to a university website obituary, he's remembered for his deep appreciation for the Catholic theological tradition. So, Lowry was raised very Catholic, and while he's now an atheist, there is an awareness of God and religion in a number of his films. And I, I think an element of seeking, along with a clear antagonism toward religion, that I think is typical for a lot of people who've left the church. And so understanding that state of mind is important if we want to have any hope of engaging people like this where they're at. Hmm. Uh, so let, let's go to the, the plot into uh, the movie. First of all, what's the point of this beheading game? That's a very good question. The beheading game is is a motif in a number of uh, medieval stories, and it has to do with the idea of uh, confronting mortality and confronting mystery. I mean, theoretically, if you chop somebody's head off, that should be the end of the game. But (laughs) of course, the opponent in these games tends to be someone supernatural. And so then it becomes a question of your own honor, your own troth. Will you accept a return blow? And what does that mean if you do? Um, in the poem, um, there, it, there are actually is a combination of games. There's the beheading game, but then also the exchange of winnings, which takes place at the castle of Sir Bertilac, where Gawain arrives. He's exhausted from weeks of adversity, seeking the Green Chapel, where he's supposed to meet the Green Knight. And Bertilac tells Gawain that the chapel's nearby, and he invites him to stay and rest for three days, entertained by his lovely wife, while Bertilac goes hunting in the forest. And so the game here is... Bertilac will give Gawain whatever he wins in the forest. Gawain will give Bertilac whatever he gets in the castle. What he gets in the castle are six kisses from Bertilac's wife, who tries for three days to seduce Gawain. Unsuccessfully, thanks in part, the poet tells us, to the Blessed Virgin Mary's watchful care over Gawain. But on the third day, she gets him to accept what she says is a magical girdle that will protect him from harm. This is too much temptation, and when Gawain finally faces the Green Knight, the knight takes two harmless swings at him before just nicking him slightly in the neck, a penalty for what he says is Gawain's slight fault for failing to turn over the girdle to Bertilac. Hmm. Interesting. So, uh, how, I guess I'll ask the blunt question, how faithful is the film to the poem? It is wildly revisionistic, um, full of incidents that have nothing to do with the story of the poem and omitting much of what is important to the poem. But what I find interesting and fascinating, really, about this movie's revisionism is that even when it departs from the text of the poem, it often continues to engage the text of the poem. It's like Lowry is inviting us to compare the poem to his film and to understand why he changed the things he did. For instance, in the poem, um, the Green Knight offers his axe to anyone who dares to take a swing at him. Um, In the movie, the knight offers to award his axe to anyone who succeeds in landing a blow against him. And Arthur, um, uh, Gawain has to borrow a sword. Gawain in the, in the film is not a knight yet. He's, mm-hmm. he's not deeply devout. He has no accomplishments whatsoever. He's kind of a slacker, getting by on his family um, um, uh, connections. He's, he's 
King Arthur's nephew. And so he has to borrow King Arthur's sort of Excalibur to behead the Green Knight. And then the Green Knight makes him carry his axe all over England trying to find him in order to return it. Um, you know, that's that's completely different from the poem. And yet in the film, when people talk about this event, like at a at a pub in Cornwall, somebody says, "Oh, this is Gawain. He 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 um, sw- swapped off the Green Knight's head with his own axe." <laughs> well, that's the way it happened in the poem, but that's but not the way it happened in the in film. the movie. Oh, right, exactly. That's funny. Uh, any significance that uh, he's there without a sword uh, and ends up uh, using Excalibur, Arthur's sword. There's a couple different things going on there. One of them is the significance of the sword itself, that handing over um, the king's sword is, is a sign of, um, of the passing of the torch. And, and Gawain okay. is ultimately in line to succeed King Arthur to the throne. But it's also important that the the sword is the instrument of accolade. It's the tool that you use when you make someone a knight. And my theory, my reading of the film is that Gawain does become a knight in a way at the very end of the story, but it's not a knight of Camelot. It's not a knight of the Christian world at all. It's, he's, he becomes inducted into the knighthood of the green knight himself, who represents the otherness, the, uh, the world of nature. And ultimately, it's, it's a world, in Lowry's worldview, that is, is atheistic and that ultimately destroys everything that human beings accomplish and care about and, um, and just, just covers, covers the whole world. And, and, and that, to me, is ultimately what this Gawain um, uh, identifies with and accepts at the end of the story. Is this, so is the world of the green knight the world of nature is is it uh does it is is it without personality uh is it is it is it mater- purely materialistic or is it pagan and has elements of the occult connected with it that is a fascinating question, and I think there's a very interesting almost a kind of dialectic between this film. The Green Knight, and one of Lowry's previous films, A Ghost Story, the one with Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. Both of these stories have a long monologue about ultimate meaning and like time on a cosmic scale. Mm -hmm. In A Ghost Story, there's a character at a party, kind of drunken guy at a party, who brings the party to a standstill with this slightly drunken talk about how an artist pursues meaning and you know you maybe you write a symphony or something uh, but most of the good music he says was written for God and what happens if you realize one day that there is no God mm. and that the meaning you're trying to to express through your music doesn't exist you know well maybe the, a combination of notes can still inspire someone but eventually civilization falls and, and even if your music helps to inspire someone to rise up again later on you know yeah. The sun is going to expand and destroy the world, and the universe is going to end in heat death, and so everything comes to nothing. But this whole chain of reasoning begins with the rejection of God. You have to start by by saying there is no God, and then this cosmic despair follows. Mm. In this movie... A Green Knight, there's a very similar monologue by a character that can be called Lady Bursalak or Lady Bertalak. She's played by Alicia Vikander, um, and she in the po- she corresponds to the character in the poem who spends three days trying to seduce Gawain. It happens very differently in the film. 
But she has this long speech about the significance of the color green and how green is always there. It's, it's always encroaching on our, on, our, um, on our buildings, on our bodies. Whenever we find it, we eradicate it, mm. but it always comes back. We can never succeed. And in the end, when we die, green fills in our footsteps. It covers our graves. It covers over everything that we care about. And in the end, the whole the human world comes to nothing. And, and this is illustrated in the film in a number of different ways. And it really does seem to me that Lowry is coming more to terms in this film compared to in a ghost story where he seems to be struggling with the loss of faith. Here, I see something that's more like acceptance. He's settled. And I, I find that kind of depressing, honestly. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a settled atheism. Uh, it's no longer... It doesn't feel as though he's still feeling the pain of loss of faith. It seems to have settled in as a, uh, a way of life. Can you stay with me another segment, uh, Steve? Yeah, absolutely. Very good. My guest, Stephen Gradana, is film critic. Uh, looking over the new movie, The Green Knight, uh, based in loosely on the uh, late 14th century Middle English chivalric romance, uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Deacon Stephen Gradanis, taking a look at the new film, The Green Knight, which is based, uh, well, it's a deconstruction or at least highly revised version of the 14th century uh, poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Uh, Stephen, there's an, an introduction that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote uh, in one edition of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and he He's talking about the author of the piece, which I understand there's some uh, dispute over. But he says if he can derive some of uh, this person's character by uh, reading the work and some other works that are apparently related to it. But he said of, of the author, he was a man of serious and devout mind, though not without humor. He had an interest in theology and some knowledge of it, though an amateur knowledge, perhaps, rather than a professional. He had Latin and French and was well enough read in French books, both romantic and instructive. But his home was in the West Midlands of England, so much as language shows in his meter and his scenery. Anything there that helps us understand the poetry? That's a that's a really good question, and I think um, it also helps to read uh, some of the poet's other work, uh, notably the Pearl, mm. um, which is in the same manuscript as as Gawain and and the Green Knight. Um, I think that combination of serious theological interest and humor is really at the crux of how we are to understand Gawain's failure at the end of the story. Um, Gawain, at the end of the story, has done almost everything perfectly. He accepted the challenge to, uh, to win honor for Arthur's court. He kept his promise to seek out the Green Knight. He resisted the seductive uh, advances of uh, Sir, Sir Bertilak's wife. He uh, returned all six kisses that she gave him, um, <laughs> kissing his host uh, for each one of those kisses when he returned from his hunting trips. His only mistake was not returning the girdle, the magic girdle that he believed would save his life from his fearsome opponent. 
And there are two very different interpretations of that act. One is that he has committed a mortal sin. He mm-hmm. he lied. He made a bad confession right before going to to the uh, to meet the Green Knight because he committed the sin and he had no intention of making restitution. Um, and then the other interpretation, which uh, is is Tolkien's, is that he. he really didn't sin at all, or certainly not in any, in any serious way. And I think when we, we look at how Gowing, how angry he is at himself for his failure, and, and he just, he's, he can't believe that he, he messed up like this, and he, he accuses himself of covetousness, which is a sin that we know he's not really guilty of. And, and it's, so there's almost a little bit of humor in his exaggerated critique of his moral failure. But everyone else... Uh, uh, Sir Bertilak, who is revealed to be the Green Knight himself in an enchanted state, and King Arthur and everyone in his court, they all judge Gawain to be peerless and and perfect and and the best of knights. Um, And the reality is somewhere in between. I think we are meant to laugh a little bit at Gawain for his exaggerated critique of himself, but we're also meant to recognize that precisely because he's a hero, we have to take his self-criticism seriously. He knows that he's an, a genuinely flawed man, and, and in some ways he's a little bit like St. Francis in that regard. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. We look at St. Francis and we think of him as, as su- such an incredibly holy person, and yet, you know, what are we going to say, that, that he's you know, crazy or a liar for uh, the, the, his, his knowledge and, and his confession of his own sins? No, we, we have to take that seriously. But right. at the same time, um, <laughs> the, the, the author of, of the poem would argue with, uh, with a little bit of humor and, and perhaps with the understanding that um, God also uh, laughs at us in our frailty. <laughs> okay. The, the movie opens with him... Um, looks like he's got a bad hangover. Uh, he's in a brothel, it looks like. Uh, and this is on Christmas Day! <laughs> this is on Christmas Day, and I think it's a woman, I, maybe the woman he spent the night with. I do, I'm not entirely certain. My memory is a little clear, unclear on this, even though I saw it last night. Um, and she, But she says, Christ is born. Right. And, and so you're immediately oriented to the Christian mystery, uh, the incarnation there. Um but he looks like, uh, as you said, a slacker. Uh, it doesn't look like he's got much of a future. He uh, even when uh, Arthur uh, tries to uh, in- enlist him uh, in his uh, monarchical future, uh, the uh, uh, Gowan seems very uh, unwilling to see himself uh, as capable. How, does the poem start out with him as such a? Near to well? <laughs> oh, this is, it's, a, it's 180 degrees opposite of, of the world of the poem. Okay. Uh, what, what the movie is really tapping into, I think, is the anxieties of many young men today, college-age young men, who, who um, uh, have this kind of failure-to-launch syndrome. There's, there's a fear about attaining respectable adulthood. That, um, um, that, and there's, there's a word around this, the idea of a fail-son, someone who comes from wealth and, and um, uh, prestige and has the ability, therefore, to coast along without actually taking risks and, and, and working to achieve their potential. Potential. And that's the Gowing that we meet here. The Gowing of the poem is presented from the outset as the epitome of knighthood, the flower of knighthood. Okay. He is already accomplished. 
Um, he's, he's celebrated. He's one of the great legends, one of the great heroes of the round table. He's devout. He's pious. And the fact that Gawain, when we meet him in the poem, is none of those things doesn't mean that he won't grow and change by the end. But I find it very significant that you know, in the course of his journeys, the first thing that happens to him is that his shield, which has the image of the Virgin Mary, and the Christ child, that's added, it makes it a Madonna and child image, um, therefore reinforcing the connection to Christmas and the Incarnation. That gets smashed yeah, in right. a robbery scene. Right. It's, it's a blatant act of iconoclasm. And then, later on, he goes on to meet a Welsh saint. This is, I think, the most interesting uh, revision of the material. He meets... He has this mystical encounter with a Welsh saint, St. Winifred, who, in, who traditionally um, was beheaded by a, a local chieftain after spurning his advances. And in the tradition, a holy well springs up where her head fell, and her brother, uh, St. Baino, manages to restore her head to her shoulders. The movie doesn't follow that tradition, but what I find most interesting in terms of the religious significance in the film is that Winifred, in spite of supposedly being a saint, is presented as a restless ghost who, as ghosts are wont to do, is seeking something. She's, she's lost her head. It's at the bottom right. of the pool. She can't right. get it back. Yeah. She needs Gowing to recover it in order that she can know peace. Yes. And, and what, what's his reward for that? <sighs> you know, even though it's, it's blatantly contrary to Catholic faith, and I, I I wrote about this at length. In, in um, this is this is a, a piece. Obviously, I have so much to say about it. And I've written <laughs> thousands and thousands of words, which you can read at my website, Decent Films. Um, I really kind of like this scene, in spite of the the almost the the, the subversive anti-Catholicism of it, because Gawain is actually kind of great in the scene. It's the one moment in the in the film where he really attains something like true nobility. He dives into this pool to recover this poor ghost's head, and he does it, and as his reward, he gets back the axe which the bandits stole from him, yes. the Green Knight's axe, which he has to carry on his shoulder like Christ carrying his cross. We haven't even been able to get to all the ways in which the film really echoes uh, the last temptation of Christ. It's, it's so blatant at the end, um, I immediately thought that the last temptation of Gawain and every critic getting up in the screening was saying, oh, it's the last temptation of Christ. Yeah, interesting. Uh, it, that didn't occur to me as I watched it. So I'm gonna, I, I did see uh, Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ twice when it came out. Um, I, I, I confess, I did fall asleep in both, both <laughs> showings. But, but uh, it was a, a movie that got a lot of attention, uh, unwelcome attention, too. Yes. Uh, but, but, but set that aside for now. But make the comparisons for me between uh, the, right. the, the, the Green Knight so, and so Last Temptation of Christ. Last Temptation of Christ, the decisive sequence, happens on the cross when Jesus either enters a dream state mm -hmm. or, or a hallucination or some other mystical state mm -hmm. where a child comes to him, removes the nails, takes him down from the cross, says, you've suffered enough, and now you get to lead a normal life. And he apparently marries Mary Magdalene, and he has children with her, right. and he grows old, she dies, he marries someone else, and so forth. And, and then on his deathbed, he realizes under cross-examination from Judas Iscariot, that's not the way it's meant to be. And then he finds himself back on the cross, and this was all a temptation. The little child was a devil, and he says, it is accomplished. So he's overcome the temptation, and he dies as he was meant to. Mm -hmm. And a very similar sequence plays out when Gawain finally confronts the Green Knight. 
he gets scared. He runs away. He goes back to Camelot. Right. He is knighted by King Arthur. He becomes king in his place. He has a child with Essel, but he steals the child from her and repulses her in just a horrifying, horrifying sequence. Um, but then everything goes south for him. His child dies in battle. Uh, his, his reign is crumbling. And then he finds himself back in the chapel. And he removes that magic girdle, the girdle that he was hoping would save his life. And, and the Green Knight is moved and touched by this. And he says, uh, well done, my brave knight. Now off with your head. And the film ends there. And so we don't know. Uh, does he like Christ at the end of Last Temptation? Does he actually die? Or is his life spared? But in my piece, I make the argument that <laughs> the knight definitely chops his head off. Yeah. And, and this, is, this is his knighthood. You see, he spent a night in the Green Chapel waiting for the Green Knight, just like a knight spends a night in a chapel before his accolade before he becomes a knight. And then he kneels down before the green knight, which is what you do when you're about to be knighted. It's not what Gawain does when he has his confrontation with the green knight. And the green knight is holding in his hand the axe, the weapon that Gawain was supposed to use to chop off his head, but he actually used Excalibur, the tool of accolade, the tool of making someone a knight. And so this is my interpretation, that the Green Knight knights Gawain at the end, not with the harmless tapping of a sword, but by chopping off his head. And now he's fully inducted into the order of what you could call the green world, that world of the of inhuman nature that um, Im- Im- impinges on our bodies and on our buildings, and uh, we try to scrub it away, but it ultimately overcomes us in the end. Mm-hmm. So it really is, I think, a nihilistic, atheistic statement. That's what I thought, um, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, anything you can tell us about, you already mentioned a little bit about uh, the the director, David Lowry, uh, and his falling away from the faith. Is there very much uh, biographical material on his uh, loss of faith? There, has he written on it, do you know? No, not specifically. I, the only thing I know is from his interviews when he talked about how he was raised very Catholic, and he talked about it specifically with regard to the motif in his film of ghosts. Mm-hmm. This is an interesting thing for me because it connects uh, a ghost story, the, the um, Casey Affleck, Rooney Mara film, uh, with this film. There are restless ghosts in both movies. And what I find fascinating is that Lowry says that while he no longer believes in an afterlife, he does still believe in ghosts. Oh. And he doesn't try to explain that or rationalize it. Okay. But but that seems to me, and, and he talks about how when he was growing up, when he was being raised Catholic in, in his father's house, they would talk about ghosts and whether they might be souls in purgatory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if Winifred wasn't supposed to be in heaven as a saint, I would have had no problem with the idea of her as a ghost in purgatory. Right. Um, but but that, that fact that he still puts these images of ghosts into his films and even says that he believes in them suggests to me that there's still some kind of openness to mystery, to something beyond the purely materialistic. And, um, you know, who knows that God's grace may be at work there. I I pray that uh, he turns and finds the Lord again. Well, Stephen, thank you. Great job. And uh, we'll talk again. Thanks, Al.